BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Frank Bruni. I'm Ross Douthat. And this is The Argument. Today, is a two-state solution for Israel and Palestine finished? And what ideas might take its place? Then, should Barack Obama be doing more to defeat Donald Trump? And what about George W. Bush? What are the obligations of past presidents in 2020? Finally, a recommendation. Back in January, President Trump announced a Jared Kushner-devised plan for peace in the Middle East. It was more favorable to Israel than prior blueprints, and it left Palestinian sovereignty deeply compromised. The plan didn't go anywhere, but it was an indicator of how the debate has changed in the last decade. Benjamin Netanyahu's government is now threatening formal annexations of strategic pieces of Palestinian territory, a move that signals comfort with permanent occupation. The Sunni Arab world, meanwhile, has been largely silent, as it's warm to Israel, tacitly cooperating with Netanyahu's government against Iran, the Palestinian cause has been left increasingly orphaned. Which brings us to the two-state solution. It's been a default position for most American Jews, liberal Jews especially, and the Israeli center for going on decades. But now, some thinkers are turning to more radical ideas. One of them is Peter Beinart, the editor-at-large of Jewish Currents and a professor of journalism and political science at City University. Peter wrote an op-ed for us entitled, Why I No Longer Believe in a Jewish State, in which he explains how he's come to support a one-state solution, a multi-ethnic, multi-religious republic with equality for Israelis and Palestinians. We asked Peter to join us today. For this conversation, it'll be just me and Michelle. Frank will come back after the break. Peter, welcome to The Argument. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So can you talk a little bit about a one-state vision for peace in Israel and Palestine, and also about how you arrived at this place? Sure. I've been a supporter of the two-state solution. I was a supporter of the two-state solution for my entire adult life. I've argued for it passionately again and again, and particularly arguing that to save it, we need to stop the Israeli subsidies to settlers that, that incentivize them to move into the West Bank, essentially taking the land on which Palestinians would build their state. And for decades, people have warned that the possibility of a two-state solution was receding. In 1982, the former deputy mayor of Jerusalem, Marin Benveniste, said that if there were 100,000 settlers in the West Bank, it would be impossible to create a viable, contiguous Palestinian state. Thomas Friedman warned your New York Times colleague that we might have reached that point in 2004. Um, now we have 650,000 settlers in the West Bank. Israel just built its most recent medical school in the West Bank. Two of its Supreme Court justices live in the West Bank. And at some point, it seemed to me, one has to take account of the reality, a reality that really strikes you if you go and see things on the ground. This is not a temporary 
prospect Israeli control of the West Bank. It's a, become a deeply entrenched, permanent reality. And that unscrambling this egg of two populations that are more and more entwined is, I think, now less realistic than starting to think about how those two populations could live equally side by side, whether in a confederation between two states that allowed free movement or in one equal federated state. So talk a little more, though, about what I think is the immediate Jewish objection to what you're proposing, which is that what you seem to be suggesting is a world in which Israel ceases to be what most of its supporters understand it to have been founded to be, which is a specifically Jewish homeland, a refuge for the Jewish people. And so imagining a sort of formally multi-ethnic, multi-religious, non-Jewish state seems, I think, to many of your readers, like an abandonment of that idea. Is it? Well, one of the things I try to argue in, in my essay in Jewish Currents is that if you look at the history of Zionist thought, up until perhaps as late as the 1940s, Zionists are not necessarily asking for a Jewish state. Uh, if you look at some of those important Zionist thinkers from Zev Jabotinsky to Leon Pinsker to Achad Ha'am to even David Ben-Gurion, what they're really arguing is for a kind of autonomous Jewish society, what I call a Jewish home, a place that can be a source of refuge for Jews and a source of rejuvenation for the Jewish world, a kind of a cultural center. It's only quite late that that hardens into the notion that it has to be a Jewish state. Now, the notion of Zionism and Jewish statehood are generally considered kind of synonymous. But my argument is that you could have a Jewish home, a, a vibrant Jewish society that provides refuge and rejuvenation with a lot of autonomy over its own affairs, even in a confederation or one equal state, that many Jews have kind of moved to the position that without statehood, Jews would be at risk of extermination. And given our history with the Holocaust, it's kind of understandable that that language comes very naturally to us. But I think actually Jews would wield significant power within one equal state, certainly enough power to make sure that Jewish life was protected. And I actually think in many ways, for better and for worse, a lot of Jewish privilege would probably remain, given that Jews are a much more economically privileged population. I think a fair reading of Palestinian history over the last hundred years suggests that the Palestinian national movement has not been defined by a kind of genocidal intent towards Jews. This is really the language of our trauma. But if we can get outside of that language of trauma and see Palestinians as normal human beings whose aspirations are not that different than most other peoples in the world, then I think we can start to see how equality is not an existential threat to individual or collective Jewish life in Israel-Palestine. So, Michelle, the last time we talked about Israel on this show, I think you were debating our conservative colleague, Brett Stevens, and speaking, in a sense, for the Jewish left. But Peter is to your left on this, right? Well, I don't know if it's correct to say that he's to my left as much as just that I think that he describes a sort of Gordian knot and I just don't know that it can be cut. Like, so I think he he sees this, I don't know, philosophical exit from what has become an impossible situation that at bottom, I'm just not convinced will work. You know, as Peter said, it's become really common for many years now for people to say we're approaching the point where Israel can be Jewish or democratic, but not both. And I would argue that we've approached that point. Certainly, if Israel annexes large parts of the West Bank, it will have 
um, gone past that point. Um, you know, so so sort of philosophically, I am completely right there with Peter. Where I trip up is that I just I don't see how in practice a binational state. I mean, given how difficult, you know, Belgium to exist as a binational state, right? Given the, you know, sort of separatist impulses that you see in a country as placid as Canada. These are two groups of people that historically have so much built up animus and trauma that I don't see how if you could even get to a binational state, it wouldn't then turn into a civil war that would ultimately be solved by two states. So I guess I would say a couple things. First of all, I think the problem with arguing about what would happen if Israel became a binational state is that Israel is already a binational state. Mm -hmm. So Israel controls all the land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, including, I would argue, even the Gaza Strip, where mm -hmm. Israel controls access in and out. In that territory, there are two nations, uh, Jews and Palestinians, a roughly equal size. So to me, the question is not about whether Israel is going to be a binational state. It already is a binational state. The question yeah, no, is, I agree is with Israel that. going to be a binational state that controls millions of people who lack basic rights, or is it going to give everyone a voice in government? And I think if one thinks about the question that way, I would certainly concede that binational states are really difficult. They're really challenging. You're right. Even in Belgium. But that binational states do much better. States in general are more stable and more peaceful when more people rather than fewer people have a voice in government. That people tend to turn to violence when they don't have a peaceful way of making government respond to their concerns. On the other point about, you know, how this would come to pass, I completely concede that we are very far away from this. But I would just note that if we take ourselves out of this conflict and we think about other historical conflicts, things that in one historical moment are unthinkable become thinkable in another moment. Even 10 years before apartheid ended with the first free election in South Africa in 1994, it was pretty much unimaginable to many observers, certainly most white South Africans, that there would be a free government that they could live under safely. Even a few years before the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, that was really unimaginable to many people. As the Black Lives Matter movement has also shown us that political movements can make the unthinkable thinkable. And I believe that the vision of equality has a better chance of creating a mass movement for change than a kind of fragmented Palestinian state under Israeli control. And I think it is mass movements that make the politically impossible possible. Again, I think we agree about a lot. And I also and I think that one of the difficulties with this sort of endless peace process is that it gets everybody bogged down in minutia about borders and who offered what and what percent of land we're trading for what percent of land, as opposed to these prevailing moral questions. Isn't there a way in which, you know, a movement for equality, a movement in which Palestinians made this sort of unimpeachable moral and democratic demand for the right to vote, the right to full equality in which the state in which they're actually living, that the end point of that would be to shake Israel into actually taking the two state solution seriously. I mean, it always seems to me that if Palestinians had been making this demand much sooner, you would have seen um, a lot more Israeli action around a two state solution, right? 
Look, there is this argument that the prospect of equality in one political entity could scare Israeli leadership into being more open to supporting two states. I, I suppose that's possible. But I also think it's important for us to remember certain things about two states. And this is part of why two states even if Israel had not, you know, basically paid 650,000 Jews to move into the West Bank, is at best the beginnings of a solution, not a permanent solution. I think one of the things that's often not recognized in American, including American Jewish discourse, is that most Palestinians don't live in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza, the territories that would be slated for a Palestinian state. Um, in mm -hmm. fact, even in Gaza, most of the Palestinians who live in Gaza are not from Gaza. They're refugees from Israel proper. Their desire or their children's desire for many of them is to return to the places where they were born, uh, where their parents were born. Or their grandparents. Or in some case, their grandparents. Yeah. I found that there's a certain kind of strange irony in the fact that American Jews who, like me, wake up every morning and open a prayer book and pray for the return to a place that we left 2,000 years ago can find it so easily to dismiss people's desire to return to homes that they left in the middle of the last century. The two-state solution, even if it were possible to create a viable contiguous Palestinian state, doesn't really address that refugee question, which is very, very central. It also doesn't really address the fact that 20% of Israel Israel's citizens inside Israel proper, right? That's 20%. So um, not an insignificant number are Palestinians who will never feel like equal citizens in a Jewish state. Peter, I want to pursue two lines of, I guess, pretty harsh skepticism of your <laughs> proposal here, if I may. Please. I'll start with, I guess, a continuation of the point I raised earlier, trying to, as a Christian, ventriloquize an argument that I've heard a lot of Jewish writers make in response to your piece. But you have a powerful argument that, you know, the arc of history is long and it bends in unexpected places. It bends towards the end of Jim Crow. It bends towards the peace process in Northern Ireland. Um, it bends towards the end of apartheid. Maybe it could bend towards Jews and Palestinians living together in harmony um, in a single state. And I think one obvious rebuttal or rejoinder to that is the arc of history is long and time and time and again, it is bent towards the persecution and um, near extermination in a few cases of the Jewish people, right? That sort of not just anti-Semitism, but violent anti-Semitism is a recurring feature of human history in Christian civilizations, Muslim civilizations, atheist civilizations, you know, Marxist Leninist civilizations, you name it. At a certain point, people always seem to want to come for the Jews. And if that's the case, then the fact that we have this moment where, you know, a large share of the world's Jewish people now live once again in a single homeland. Yes, there is power in that and a certain kind, as you said, uh, of privilege. But there's also in concentration, there's an extreme vulnerability. And if the models of multi-ethnic societies, multi-religious societies around you are what they are in the Middle East, meaning not just Belgium with its bureaucratic problems, but Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, places that have been, you know, have sort of collapsed at various points into ruinous civil war, then it's not just Michelle's point about how a one-state solution might lead to a civil war that in turn leads to a two-state solution. It's more than that. It's, you know, if Israel became a sort of post-Jewish state that then collapsed into civil war, what guarantee would there be in that kind of region of the survival of the Jewish refuge, the Jewish community that you're talking about? I And just to, just to 
to to finish this up and then you can respond. I'm not Jewish, but I am Christian. And there's a lot of Christian experience with multi-religious, multi-ethnic states in the Middle East over the last hundred years. And it's been dreadful. The, you know, population of Middle Eastern Christians has collapsed. Uh, you know, there's been massive persecution of Middle Eastern Christians, even in a country like Lebanon, where there's been a certain amount of Christian power, you know, instantiated in the Constitution. Christian populations have gradually drifted away to other parts of the world. So, it seems to me, as a Christian observer of the Jewish position, that to give up the political advantages of having your own state in the context of the modern Middle East, forget the wider context of history, you're putting yourselves at incredible risk for, at best, an uncertain moral return. I think you have to compare the prospect of equality to the future that we're headed for if we continue with the status quo, right? Israel now controls millions of people who lack basic rights in what is already a binational state. It is very, very unlikely that those people are going to remain quiescent indefinitely. Controlling people without basic rights, millions of people, Gaza is now considered uninhabitable for human beings by the United Nations, is a recipe for uprising after uprising, intifada after intifada. So when one compares the potential different paths, I think one has to factor in the fact that the violence of oppression will bring more violence. The reason apartheid ended in significant measure was essentially an uprising emerged in Black South Africa that never ended. I think we have to contemplate seriously the possibility that Israel on its current path will face third, fourth, fifth intifadas or simply permanent intifadas. Israel was not necessarily a great refuge for many Jews during the Second Intifada when buses were blowing up all over the place, including killing a friend of mine. Um, we know from political science research that oppression breeds violence and breeds war. So that's the path that Israel is on. I also fear, I worry a great deal, that if that path continues, that Israel move, may move ever closer to another act of mass population expulsion. Of course, it was founded on an act of mass population expulsion in 1947 and 1948 is what Palestinians call the Nakba. The second point I, I would make is that when one compares Israel to the, the, the Middle East or the Arab world, I think there's a great danger in falling into a kind of an ethnic or religious essentialism. I'm not suggesting you're doing that, Ross, but I do think that exists in the Jewish conversation. It reminds me a lot of what I used to hear as the child of South Africans with people saying, how could South Africa ever be a stable democracy where white people could live safely? After all, look at what a disaster the rest of the African continent has been. I think it's really important to look at individual countries individually. Um, Israel-Palestine has huge advantages in its ability to be a stable liberal democracy over its neighbors, a much higher literacy rate, a set of functioning democratic institutions now in terms of bureaucracy, court system, press, military that stays out of politics that work well for Jews and would need to be expanded to the entire population. But most post-colonial Arab states did not have those things. And on the question of Christians, I would just note that one additional country in which the Christian population has dramatically dwindled is Israel-Palestine. 
right? If Christians have left Iraq and Egypt and other countries because they've been oppressed, they have also left Israel-Palestine because as Palestinian Christians, they are oppressed just like Muslim Palestinians are. So I think if you ask the vast majority of Palestinian Christians whether they think they would do better in one equal reality versus a situation where they live as stateless non-citizens without free movement or due process or the right to vote for the government that controls their lives, they would definitely take door number one. Peter, so let me ask you this. So how do you get to what you're talking about? You can't really expect Israeli Jews, you know, for whom right now the status quo for most of them is perfectly tolerable, right? And one of the things that's really striking to me the last few times I've been in Israel is the extent to which people don't even really talk that much about the occupation, right? right? They can just sort of, it's just sort of out of their minds, The occupation just doesn't loom that large over mainstream Israeli life. So what is the process that you can imagine by which we go from this kind of status quo, which I think to you and I seems untenable, but to a lot of Israelis seems eminently tenable, to first a movement for equality, right, which would require some real transformations that I think are already happening among Palestinians, including probably the dismantling of the Palestinian Authority. So first, how you see sort of the steps that would lead to both the birth of this movement and its possible um, success. So I think, you know, the challenge for those of us who care about both Jewish and Palestinian dignity and and basic rights, I think, is to, in a loving and peaceful way, make the status quo less tenable. And I think the first thing is the joint list, which is the amalgam of, of mostly Palestinian parties in Israel, is really the left in Israel today. It's the only movement, part, set of parties that is really offering a vision of real equality. And I think what we need to do is work to turn that into a genuinely Jewish Palestinian left together. You know, people always have said for many, many years, you know, the Israeli left is dying. What they generally mean is the Israeli Jewish left. Why would anyone think that the Israeli left could compete? when the people who are its most natural constituents are essentially left out of the Israeli political system in the sense that they're not considered legitimate coalition partners in a government. So I would like to see progressive Jewish parties like Meretz join the joint list. Secondly, part of what allows Israel to maintain the occupation at such low cost is the Palestinian Authority, which was created to be the embryo of a Palestinian state at the beginning of the Oslo peace process in 1994 is nowhere near becoming a state, but basically does a whole series of things on Israel's behalf. This is what scholars might call indirect rule. I think what we need is a nonviolent uprising, both against Israeli control and against the Palestinian Authority, which is Israel's subcontractor. That forces Israel to then deploy its own soldiers and bureaucrats to try to run this territory. And the cost, just the financial cost, just the cost in terms of human energy of doing that go way up. And then I think the conversation in Israel changes. Remember, the reason that we got to the Oslo process in the early 90s to begin with was that the first intifada in the late 1980s showed Israeli Jews that the cost of controlling this territory were high. And the first intifada was a mostly nonviolent 
effort. The last point I would make is that in Jerusalem, Palestinian residents of Jerusalem can vote in local elections, but they mostly boycott those elections. If they were to vote in large numbers, Jerusalem, of course, an extremely important city, could become a model of what might be possible in the country as a whole. I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, I mean, look, when I first became aware of you, you were the editor in chief of, you know, the New Republic (laughs) at a kind of hawkish pro-Iraq war Mm -hmm. magazine. And I think you've already, you know, done a lot of work and written a whole book about the folly of some of the positions that the New Republic pushed. And I think, you know, the real damage that the kind of intellectual hegemony of the magazine at that time caused in American life. I mean, from from where you were there to where you are now is really a fairly significant intellectual journey. But I'm curious about sort of what it was that ultimately made liberal Zionism untenable for you. I think it was really what you referenced. You know, it was starting in the early 2000s, almost 20 years ago now, that I first went and spent time uh, with Palestinians in the West Bank to see the occupation for myself. And in some ways, I'm a a bit ashamed of that because I've been going to Israel since I was a kid and uh, felt a very deep love for uh, Jewish society in the land of Israel. And I still do. I feel an enormous, enormous love for that society. um, It's hard to describe, actually, in some ways, the ways that I feel when I'm enveloped in that society. But uh, it was a, a shocking experience uh, to go there the first time. You know, I think it's one thing to understand in the abstract that people live under a government that can do anything that that government wants to them and they have no recourse because they're not citizens. And uh, if the government wants to take their land, if the government wants to imprison them, if the government wants to kill them, um, that they really, they're virtually powerless. But when you see what that looks like day after day for, for a half century, standing in villages that are about to be bulldozed, not because people have done anything wrong, but because they can't get building permits because they're not citizens. So the government doesn't give them building permits or being in the house of people who talk about, you know, their children waking up in the middle of the night screaming because the army keeps coming into the, in their, in their house in the middle of the night looking for people who threw stones because kids in that village throw stones at an occupying army that humiliates their parents, just as my kids might do that if they were in that situation. That was a profound experience for me. And then I kept doing it again and again. And I have spent many, many years trying to figure out how I can hold that experience and honor that reality without losing the centrality of Judaism in my life, because I'm not a pure universalist. Um, For me, being a Jew is at the core of my existence. And so I've tried to find a way of rooting my Jewish identity in things that are bigger than the kind of I think often quite limited Israel-Palestine discourse in the Jewish community that exists today. If you look, if you read Talmud, as I do every morning, you see that we come from a much bigger and deeper tradition than the kind of Hasbara, APAC talking points of the moment. Um, and there are ways of honoring that tradition and honoring our commitment to one another that do not require us to be complicit in this terrible, terrible evil that I've seen, you know, firsthand. Um, and one of the things I please with Jewish audiences when I speak to them is to go and see it firsthand. I've rarely experienced people who've gone and seen it. And oh, me not... too. I ask, I beg people to do that all the time. Right. Because, you know, you, you know, it is a transformative experience, no matter, almost no matter what your politics are. And one of the things that frightens me about our community is that we talk constantly about Palestinians without talking to Palestinians, without listening to Palestinians. And that, I think, is a recipe for dehumanization. 
so tell me how sort of making this fairly profound break with, you know, kind of the overwhelming consensus in the Jewish community has affected your place in that community. I mean, there's this other swirling conversation right now about quote unquote cancel culture, a phrase I don't love, but we'll use a shorthand for these purposes. And I think one of the things that frustrates left wing people watching this debate play out is that there is no form of speech more stigmatized, more officially repressed, more likely to, you know, kind of derail a lot of professional prospects than anti-Zionism in American life, right? Like whether whether or not you are an anti-Zionist, I mean, anti-Zionist speech support for the boycott divestment sanctions movement, you know, has like official government sanction. It's like a uniquely repressed kind of speech. And there's a lot of frustration that people who complain the most about cancel culture, you know, sort of seem okay with that and, you know, are sort of perfectly willing to stigmatize that form of speech as, as beyond the pale. You know, but sort of having made that break, what is that sort of meant for you as a public person? Well, look, I'm very lucky. First of all, I'm Jewish, which makes it a lot easier for me than if I were Palestinian or or, or, or neither a Palestinian nor Jewish. Um, secondly, uh, I know a lot of people in the organized Jewish community. Many of them are friends of mine, myself, and they know that I am not distant from Jewish life and Jewish concerns. And so that makes it a little bit easier for me. But, um, uh, you know, it's still true that the Anti-Defamation League said that my essay was anti-Semitic. It's a bewildering experience to wake up in the morning, put on tefillin, study Talmud, go on your computer and see that the premier organization in the American Jewish community, which is fighting anti-Semitism, has said that you are trafficking in anti-Semitism. It's, it's an absurd situation, but I am in a much better position to fight that than and many, many other people who get just bowled over by it. And I think we have to use that privileges that we have as Jews to fight that. And, and when we talk about cancel culture, which does worry me in, in, in certain ways, I think that exactly as you say, Michelle, we have to start with our own house. The American, organized American Jewish community is one of the worst offenders in this. And I really believe that if we want to create a broad coalition to say that we should have more forgiveness in our discourse and that we should meet bad speech with more speech, and not try to shut things down, there would be nothing that would be more valuable than for the organized American Jewish community to start changing the way that it behaves. Because again, I think that it, it, we have done in the organized American Jewish community so much harm in terms of intimidating people out of being able to feel like they can express their opinion. And, and I don't think it's ultimately good for American public discourse. All right. Well, there's probably at least 300 years more of argumentation that we could have on this topic, but I think I think we should leave it there. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Peter. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, 
which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Welcome back. And welcome back, Frank. I missed you. Did you? Did you? We were in Israel-Palestine for a very long time. Uh, So let's talk about ex-presidents. Frank, let's start with Obama. What do you think his role in the 2020 election is right now and what should it be? Well, his role right now is pretty much that of any past president of the same party, right? I mean, if you've got a party's nominee or de facto nominee, Joe Biden, in this case, um, your party's most recent president, if that person is still around, if that person has still got some energy, et cetera, which Obama does, becomes part of the campaign always. But I think the reason we need to talk about Obama this year in a different way is this year is like none other, right? I mean, we have now passed, what is it, the 140,000 mark in terms of fatalities in this country from COVID-19. We're obviously going to go over 200,000 and God knows where it ends from there. Donald Trump is unlike any other president in recent American history, and another four years could be, I think, would be catastrophic for this country. And so Obama needs to play a role that is even more aggressive, I think, than would happen in a normal situation. And I also say that because I think he has a very, very special moral clout. His popularity as next president is through the roof. It's not just him. It's Michelle Obama also. They have... Um, as I said, a moral weight and a potential sway with voters that I think needs to be harnessed and used for all it's worth. If I can, if I can mix vehicular metaphors, this is an all hands on deck pedal to the metal situation. They need to make abundantly, repeatedly, incessantly clear to American voters that they see this as a do or die moment for this country um, and that people cannot get complacent, cannot sit at home, uh, cannot make any sort of assumptions. Now, I'm, cu- I'm curious for Michelle's take, as I do think that there is a danger if it goes too far, uh, which is that you don't want them to be so incredibly in the foreground that Joe Biden, who tends to recede into the background anyway, um, almost gets forgotten. But I do think there's a way to thread the needle. And I think right now, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are not as out there as they could and should be. So my feeling is that where Barack Obama really owed it to do more to stop Donald Trump was when he was still president. I think that he underestimated the threat that Donald Trump would pose to American democracy. And so my feeling is that a lot of the things that Donald Trump has falsely accused Obama of doing, Obama should have actually been doing some of those things, right? He should have been more aggressive in trying to publicize the FBI counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign and to get to the bottom of some of the financial entanglements that we now know Mueller never even really looked at. And so we still don't really have any clarity on. Donald Trump was committing crimes Throughout the presidential campaign, he was, if not committing treason, you know, certainly flirting with an unprecedented betrayal of the country. And, you know, Americans didn't know any of this. Right. All they knew about was Hillary Clinton's emails. And part of that is because Obama is such a scrupulously fair minded person and so um, kind of devoted to rules of procedural liberalism. 
And I do think that if he had understood the extent to which Donald Trump would turn this country into a flaming smoking wreck, I wonder if he would have done more. So as for what he should be doing now, it's just not clear to me that him stumping a lot more would convince people who aren't already convinced, right? One of the reasons that that Barack Obama has such high approval ratings is that he is sort of aloof and above the fray. And so it's not clear to me that if he really gets into it, some of that doesn't disappear. And my guess is that he will stump a lot more as we get closer to the election. Look, every single person of goodwill in this country needs to be doing every single thing they can to bring this abomination of an administration to an end. But before I say that, you know, Obama or Michelle has something specific that they should be doing, I would just want to hear something much more specific about what that is. Well, so, I mean, I can try and float something, right? I mean, because in general, I've been really skeptical is, you know, that there is a an Obama intervention uh, from his post-presidency that would make a difference insofar as, you know, for all his popularity, Obama represents the establishment that Donald Trump ran against. And Trump has throughout his presidency traded very explicitly on the idea that he is being treated unfairly by this establishment. And the way that Trump has bound Republicans and sort of center-right voters to him especially has often been based around this sense that Trump's enemies or rivals or critics are breaking norms in their own way to go after Trump. And I think Obama going after Trump in a big way in the past would have had a sort of magnified version of that effect. However, in the conditions we're in right now, you could imagine a couple interventions from Obama. One would be sort of saying more that's sort of about public health, basically, that sort of presents himself as an authority figure vis-a-vis the pandemic, doesn't mention Trump at all, but sort of establishes a kind of implicit contrast with, I guess, the briefings that Donald Trump is going to start up again soon. The other point is that you know, what's interesting is Joe Biden is, you know, leading by eight to 10 points in the polls right now, but he's still underperforming Obama in among African-Americans and Hispanics. And so that's a place where it is possible that a more sort of targeted Obama campaign could make some kind of difference. Uh, I, I'm in furious agreement with you, Ross, <laughs> about, about everything you just said, including the distinction between what it would have been like before uh, in terms of Trump's chosen narrative of persecution by the establishment as he went about his disruption versus how it would play now if Obama or for that matter, and we'll get to him, George W. Bush came out and campaigned against Donald Trump. I think this is a question of turnout. I don't think Barack Obama is going to change anybody's mind. I don't think minds are that changeable at this point in time. Donald Trump has been such a dominating president in all the wrong ways that I don't think people are still trying to make up their mind whether they prefer Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And I think at this stage, it's about who can arouse the greatest passion and turn out the greatest numbers of voters. And that's that's what you just addressed in terms of where both Obamas can be effective. I, I would also say this, though. One of the things that concerns me in the polls is Biden's voters don't always seem as psyched about voting for him as Trump's smaller number feel about voting for him. Barack Obama worked with Joe Biden in the White House for eight years. 
Barack Obama is a beautiful writer, a beautiful speaker, and I would like to hear him make the case to Americans, to Democrats, to independents, to Republicans who have already indicated an openness to to jump across the aisle to abandon Donald Trump. I'd like to hear him make the case. This is the Joe Biden I know. This is why you should be more excited about Joe Biden than you realize. And this is the way I can see the Joe Biden I know governing this country through this incredibly, incredibly vital crossroads. Right. But don't you think that that'll start at the I mean, I don't want to I don't know if convention is the right word anymore, but, you know, at whatever they come up with in lieu of a convention. I mean, that's usually right when you start hearing those kind of speeches. And I would imagine that you'll see him stumping or again, doing whatever is the pandemic equivalent of stumping pretty furiously throughout the final two months of the campaign. It just seems like if he does that now, doesn't he sort of leech a little bit of the drama around the Biden speech that he gives next month, you know, at this kind of virtual convention when all the networks are running it, when, you know, you have much more kind of public attention on this? Just to cut in, Frank, I mean, it is it is striking in my memory of Bill Clinton's role in the 2012 election, right, that the drama of Clinton's extremely long, extremely effective convention speech on behalf of Obama Part of the success of that speech was that it was sort of a distinctive one-off event that that was collectively experienced rather than just a kind of general Clinton stumping for Obama thing. Do you think that's right? Well, yeah. And I think uh, I wouldn't necessarily, as I was listening to Michelle and then you just say this, maybe what I'm talking about in part is what I'd like to see happen from the moment of the convention onward. I I don't think this can just be a one-off moment. I think this needs to be a more sustained campaign because, again, everything about this election, about this moment in America is completely different. Um, But as as for kind of waiting to make the most kind of full-throated, full-bodied case until (laughs) whatever the convention is going to be or whatever we call it, sure. But from that moment forward, I think this needs to be not just a one-off, but a sustained, repeated impassioned message. So we're sort of talking about degrees, though, right? I mean, fundamentally, we all expect Obama to campaign for Biden. Um, You know, he already is, in some sense, campaigning for Biden. So we're we're arguing about a range of possible actions. Whereas with George W. Bush, there's, in certain ways, a more interesting question, right? Insofar as, um, you know, no one in Bush's position has ever endorsed a presidential nominee of the rival party. Now, I mean, not in not in modern American politics. I'm sure you can find some wacky 19th century cases. And Bush is, you know, the Bushes are well known to despise Donald Trump. I think that's fair to say. Uh, I think can't imagine why. (laughs) And lots of people from Bush world are, you know, sort of at least tangentially involved in the world of Republicans who are lending some tacit support to Joe Biden. So it makes it extremely unlikely, but at the same time, at least imaginable that Bush himself could make an intervention on Biden's behalf. Do either of you guys think that could happen? I don't think George W. Bush is ultimately going to come out and say, I'm voting for Biden. And I'm really sad to tell you the reason why. I mean, one reason why is I think that that isn't his style. But uh, what needs to be noted in all of this is there's another George Bush with a different middle initial, George P. Bush, the Texas land commissioner, who has already come out and endorsed Donald Trump enthusiastically as he did four years ago. 
I think this calculation has been made by George P. Bush, and I'm guessing by his immediate family, which would include his father, Jeb, uh, who was so sublimely well-treated by Donald Trump during the 2016 campaign. I think they have taken, they've done what Nikki Haley has done, which is they've taken stock of the Republican Party and decided whatever their feelings about Donald Trump, it is going to be very hard in the immediate future to be a star or a leader in the Republican Party if you have completely, completely alienated Donald Trump's voters. And so I think George W. Bush, for dynastic concerns, is going to bite his tongue for the sake of his nephew, George P. Bush, and the next generation of Bushes. And I think it's a fatal miscalculation in the wrong term. Right. I mean, and imagine being so venal, so unpatriotic, I mean, so, you know, frankly, despicable. Although, you know, in some sense, that's in keeping with the George W. Bush I remember, right? I mean, I think that there's been a lot of retroactive burnishing of George W. Bush's extraordinarily terrible record and extraordinarily demagogic presidency because, you know, it seems like a golden age in comparison to our current nightmare, right? But there was a lot of authoritarian bluster in George W. Bush's administration, catastrophic decision-making, you know, in some senses, catastrophic decision-making that so damaged the country um, that Obama was only able to do so much to put it back together. And it sort of laid the foundations for the nightmare that we're living through right now, which leads me to why I'm a little bit torn about whether I think it would even be a good thing if George W. Bush, you know, summoned whatever sparks of decency do exist in his soul and decided to try and redeem himself, which is that Joe Biden is trying to do two things right now. He's trying to consolidate the left and he's trying to win over moderate independents and some Republicans who are appalled by Trump. And in some sense, those imperatives can clash a little bit. It seems to me that if George W. Bush came out and endorsed Joe Biden, as opposed to just lambasting Trump, um, which I think would be a useful intervention, um, you know, maybe the way Mitt Romney did in 2016, that could very well serve to just increase suspicion of Biden among some of the young left wing voters that he needs to fire up. I'm skeptical. I think Biden, in a weird way, benefits at the moment from being the sort of, you know, broadly acceptable candidate who isn't inspiring everyone. So, I mean, I I think in certain ways the Biden campaign doesn't need to worry as much as maybe you think it does, Frank, about that enthusiasm gap. If Donald Trump is trading on the enthusiasm of 36% of the country, that's okay for Biden. Right, <laughs> right? right. Like I Barry Goldwater had a lot of really enthusiastic voters. And your vote, your vote I think doesn't I, get counted twice just because you're super enthusiastic. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I mean, I think, I think, you know, obviously if we get in some, you know, insane pandemic dynamic, you know, where voting is more dangerous, maybe that changes. But I think generally, I think to the extent that Bush sort of, you know, stepped forward as a spokesman for a lot of the suburban Republicans who right now are fleeing Trump's campaign, I think it would probably help in a very, you know, in a very modest way, cement that shift. Um, I think it would also lock in 
the Trumpian vision of himself battling the entire establishment in ways that would make it tough for the Bushes to have influence in the future Republican Party. And I think probably you're right, Frank, that ultimately the the future of George P. Bush and any other future Bushes is one of the many things along with a sort of, you know, there's a normal culture of ex-presidents that Jimmy Carter sort of dissents from, but that I I think the Bushes sort of definitely see themselves as participating in. And I think that will keep Bush in the end in the zone of making obvious criticisms of Trump without endorsing. I think I agree with Michelle, though, that there's, you know, that's that's morally dubious. I think it would be one thing if George P. Bush were poised to inherit the Republican Party from Donald Trump. And there was a sense that, you know, well, we have to put this thing back together after Trump. And so we have to, you know, we have to sort of maintain George P. as the man to do it. But George P. is the Texas land commissioner, right? Like he he may have a future (laughs) in national politics, but he's not in the position that a Nikki Haley, a Mike Pence, a Marco Rubio, a Josh Hawley, and so on are. There's not going to be a Bush-led rebuilding of the Republican Party in 2021 or 2025. And as long as that's the case, I think, you know, if George W. Bush really does have the view of Trump that I think we all assume he has, then at the very least, the model of, you know, Romney's frontal attacks on Trump um, seems like something I, I would think he should consider. He's made pretty clear that he does not support the way Donald Trump is governed and that he has nothing but distaste for Donald Trump. But I also think clear to who, right? I mean, he's he's made it clear in this sort of oblique way, but not in a way that it is, you know, abundantly obvious to your sort of median Republican or to somebody who doesn't, you know, watch a lot of cable news. I I mean, who knows? But I would be curious if most Republicans understand the extent to which George W. Bush at least seems to not approve of Donald Trump. And so, you know, the extent to which George W. Bush could penetrate that epistemological bubble is not clear, but I think he could because it would make a splash if he really came out, not just with some sort of subtle nods to what real governing is supposed to look like, but a, you know, frontal attack on an unfit con man turning our country into a global pariah and, you know, leading us towards economic ruin. It would be a big, big story. And, you know, it wouldn't convince maybe a a lot of Trump supporters, but they would certainly it would certainly penetrate. You say I don't I don't in the end, in a certain sense, care whether it convinces Trump voters or not. Uh, I mean, I certainly don't think it would work in the opposite way. It wouldn't do any harm. I kind of care about this and I want to see him do more. I agree. What he's done to date is too oblique. I want to see him do it because it's friggin' right. Right. I mean, we ju- we have a president who just gave an interview on Fox News in which he said he wasn't sure he was going to accept the results of the election. And that was a kind of fleeting evanescent headline as we moved on to other things, because it was so unsurprising to hear this man say it. If any other incumbent president had said something similar, it would have been the news cycle for two weeks. The odd thing about the dynamic around George W. Bush is that there is a segment of the Republican Party, the Trump supporting Republican Party, that shares a version of Michelle's incredibly harsh assessment of the Bush presidency. And they didn't share it five or seven or eight years ago. Um, and they've you know, been brought round to it in part by Trump's own influence, but in part, I think, just by sort of time and distance working its effects. 
you know, where you have you have a number of smart Trump supporters who I know who think of Bush as, you know, the failed president whose record they supported Trump in order to partially repudiate. Right. The, you know, they supported Trump because he was promising no more stupid wars and so on and things like that. And I think there would be a really there would be a really interesting internal conservative dynamic. You would have some interesting things written about George W. Bush's presidency by prominent Trump supporters in the event that he actually either endorsed Biden or just came out swinging against Trump. Um, but again, I agree with you, Frank, that it seems ultimately unlikely. So let's leave things there. Well, I think I think we have one more bit of business from you, Ross, right? Oh, is it my week to give us a recommendation? I, I heard a rumor. I mean, I have many. It's been so long. I have many recommendations and they all revolve around, um, you know, television shows that my children have watched. Um, but instead of <laughs> instead of a TV show, I'm going to recommend a book, which is a book that I've been sort of haphazardly reading to my kids as I attempt to give them some tiny bit of culture during this long homebound period. And that's a book called A Little History of the World by E.H. Gombrich, written, I believe, in the 1930s uh, by Gombrich, who is, among other things, a famous historian of art. Um, and it covers, uh, you know, from Egypt and Sumer up until uh, the 1920s, basically. And it's many things, but I think the thing that recommends it is that it's just written in this really terrific style that is child-friendly without being condescending. What ages is it for? So I'm reading it to our nine-year-old and seven-year-old. And I would say for, I would say for like eight to 12-year-olds mm -hmm. is is how I would classify it. For for reading aloud, I think for reading on their own, maybe, uh, you know, on, on the older side. And it's, you know, it's a curiosity because it's 80 or almost 100 years old. It has a very sort of Whig interpretation of history kind of thing where, you know, each thing that it's writing about is sort of treated as, you know, in some sense, a step towards modernity. But that also lends it a spirit that's often absent in the way we talk about the past, where he's sort of trying to take each moment he's writing about on its own terms. But it, you know, it has it has a lot of interesting <laughs> qualities um, that I haven't found in more contemporary works of history for kids. And it's not very long. Um, so I recommend it. So, Ross, again, what's the recommendation? The recommendation is A Little History of the World by E.H. Gombrich. And that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a question you want to hear us debate, Share it with us in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. If you like what you hear and think other people should hear it too, go ahead and leave us a review. If you don't like what you hear, or you just have something you'd like to share with us, reach out over email at argument at nytimes.com. The Argument is a production of the New York Times Opinion Section. The team includes Phoebe Lett, Paula Schumann, and Pedro Rafael Rosado. Special thanks to Brad Fisher and Kristen Lynn. We'll see you next week. Um, <clears throat> welcome back. And welcome back, Frank. Hey, good to see you. I'm good to hear. All right. Try that again, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>